I want to point it uh, to, and I, you know that I, I, I really dislike her, and I want to say she's uh, a jerk, right? Uh, and then uh, accidentally, right, I, maybe I have a muscle spasm or Sungwoo isn't Mary just jumps in very quickly and I end up pointing at Mary as I'm uttering she's a jerk. It seems like in that case, even though I intended to speak about uh, Sue, even though you know that I intended to speak about Sue, I still kind of have to apologize and explain away this situation. And so the natural way to think about this is that I said something that I didn't intend to say. So this is a kind of a case where it seems like my intentions go, you know, in a different direction from what actually is the meaning of my effort. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 168. And this episode is with Una Stoinich, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at Princeton University, where she works in the philosophy of language, formal semantics and pragmatics, and philosophical logic. And Una has lots of interests and seems to be juggling all sorts of projects. So in this episode, we restricted ourselves to just three of them. First, we talk about linguistic conventions and how language consists of more than just the words we might find in a dictionary and how appealing to them or expanding our understanding of them might help us make sense of certain philosophical puzzles that we'll get into. Then second, we talk about slurs and pejoratives and her joint work with Ernie Lepore, which he and I discussed way back in episode 85. But uh, the main topic here is how philosophers have attempted to determine just what it is that makes slurs offensive, and then Una and Ernie's novel theory uh, that attempts to explain this. And then third, we get into a problem with word individuation. So just how much can our spelling or pronunciation of a word vary from its canonical spelling or pronunciation and still be thought of as still be thought of as that same word. So Una's latest book is Context and Coherence, The Logic and Grammar of Prominence. And there there's a link to that in the in the description. And likes, comments, reviews, subscribes, all appreciated. And now, without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Una. I've spoken to two of your Jersey colleagues, uh, Liz Camp and then Ernie Lepore, about the philosophy of language. And I probably asked them this same question, which was just what was it about the philosophy of language that drew you in? And more particularly, I guess, was it an appreciation for its literary beauty, which I think might have been the case for Liz or an appreciation of its incredibly sophisticated technical workings, or its importance for the mind in metaphysics, or some combination of these things, or something I haven't even mentioned yet. Yeah, I think for me, it really was the combination of the two things. So I was always interested in languages, and uh, that's, you know, just learning languages was something that came to me naturally. 
Um, and I was interested in questions about communication, the subtlety of, of human communication. How is it that we we are able to, you know, convey our thoughts to one another through linguistic means and what makes us capable of doing that? So those kinds of questions were always something that I was drawn in. Um, and then on uh, from the other sort of perspective, uh, it was the interest in logic that kind of drew me in. Uh, so when I first started doing philosophy, I had very little background and very, very little prior exposure, but I was immediately drawn to the precision of logic. And so that, that seeing that that can be applied to the study of language was something that uh, was really revelatory to me and uh, uh, that kind of drew me in. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, when I, I talked to Liz, I think I, I started out by saying that philosophy of language is almost frightening how technical it can get but then her work is not super logical in that sense as i recall but then yours kind of straddles the line in that you do both but i know you speak english obviously and then serbian what are the other languages that you've studied yeah so um well so i I studied uh, Spanish for a bit, uh, and I also studied Italian for quite a bit. And uh, that was partly because I was uh, initially, before I became a philosopher, I wanted to be an opera singer. And so that was a part of the music training. And so that that came by way of school. And then obviously we had a couple of years of Latin uh, in school. Um, so those are the, the social languages that I that I studied. I studied French for a very long time, but to, with very little success, though. <laughs> so it was one that I couldn't really claim to have, but uh, but the other ones, I, I, I did better. <laughs> uh, one language that I tried to learn, that is, this is how I'm going to transition a little bit, is Hebrew. <laughs> because I, when, when I was at Columbia before uh, Stanford, where I am now, I studied with Heim Gaifman. And I thought he might want to speak Hebrew with me, but he had no interest. What I would like try to speak Hebrew with him, and he would just just totally <laughs> ignore me. I see. Yeah. So, but I know that you were at Columbia before you were at Princeton, and our time didn't overlap at all. But did you work at all with him? Because I always love to hear Heim Gaifman stories if anybody has them. Yeah, I don't know if I had any stories, but I very much enjoyed talking to him. And uh, he was uh, the one thing that was kind of striking is he was always very open to kind of having this long discussions about you know philosophy of language and logic. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed that. So I, I, I do, I do remember him fondly from from my time at Columbia. Yeah, now that I'm not on the east coast i don't get these really late calls but i mean he would call at like 1 or 2 a.m because he wanted to talk about logic or philosophy of language or something like that he he does seem to have endless you know stamina for (laughs) philosophical conversation Mm -hmm. but okay well moving on to some of your work i i think a really great place to start off would be talking about your project on word individuation just because it's one super easy to grasp and then it's also just an interesting puzzle and i'm sure you'll do a better job of explaining the problem than i will but i'll try and it's i mean we all recognize that there's 
some tolerance in the pronunciation or spelling of a word. So if a syllable is stressed incorrectly or oddly, or if the spelling is slightly off, we still recognize, we can still recognize a tokening of a certain word. But if the divergence is too great, then we don't recognize it as this word any longer. And this then raises the question then of how we should think of the dividing line, dividing line and, and whether there is one. Is that how you think of this question? Yeah, yeah. So what drew me into this project, I actually came to it by through through the work on context sensitivity I was doing, and the reason, sort of the the, the path for me was I was uh, arguing that there's very little uh, mind reading by way that that does so there's very little work that mind reading does in fixing the meaning of our expressions. Uh, there, but there's a lot of ambiguity in language, uh, so that uh, the work, you know, you can get to kind of fully specified logical forms, and then uh, the disambiguation does the work of telling you which one was the one that the speaker uttered. And that got me thinking into, well, what makes it so that a particular form is the one I uttered on a particular occasion of use? And one sort of a stripped down version of that question is what makes it so that I uttered a particular word when I spoke rather than another. And the obvious point where this becomes puzzling is when we start thinking about homonyms, right? So what made it so that I uttered the word bank meaning financial institution, not bank meaning the river bank on an occasion of use. And so the one one line of thinking is that it has to do with something about how, you know, what I intended to say. And then the thought is, well, but not everything goes. It what comes out of my mouth sounds like banana, right? It can't be the word bank, right? Otherwise, uh, I would. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so that's a very natural starting point where a lot of people start and then it's it's widely spread in the literature but i came to think that it's wrong uh and one place to kind of put pressure on this is precisely the, the one you mentioned so like obviously a word can be misspelled and mispronounced in various ways uh and uh, uh it can change in its spelling and pronunciation over time it can change across different dialects right uh, so it can be that the shape of a word is what determines the identity, a shape of a sound or an inscription is what determines the identity of the uh, token word that I uttered, right? Because it can vary so greatly. So there has to be something beyond that. And now this idea of tolerance then comes in by saying, well, maybe it's just, it has to sufficiently resemble by local standards. And my worry there was that that kind of confuses the epistemic question of how we recognize the, the particular token was uttered versus the sort of grounding metaphysical question of what makes it so that I uttered a particular token. So it's true that you're going to have much more success recognizing which word I tokened if it sounds similar to the canonical pronunciation or uh, the canonical spelling of that word. Uh, but that doesn't have an effect on what happened within my you know, mind as I was uh, going through the process of speech production. So that sort of reliance and tolerance, uh, I argue that paper confuses these epistemic questions of how we interpret one another with metaphysical questions of how, uh, you know, what makes it so that a particular word, uh, word was tokened. Hmm. One thing you said at the beginning of your response was that 
there's very little work that mind reading does in fixing the meaning of expressions. And I imagine that some of our listeners who aren't familiar with the philosophy of language might not understand what you meant by, by mind reading and meaning fixing. Could you uh, elaborate on what that means? Yeah, so this now ties into the, the the work on context sensitivity. So one of the things that I was interested in, and this is what what I was talking about in in, in the book, um, was this question of how it is that we are so good at interpreting context sensitive language when it can have such wide array of meanings. And the easy case to think about it is if I utter a demonstrative pronoun, so I point at my cat and say that is fluffy, right? Uh, what makes it so that uh, you understand that you prefer that my utterance means that my cat is fluffy and how is it that you can understand it so quickly? Because after all, if I point at something else, I point at my sweater and say that is fluffy, right? I would have has said something completely different and there's no end of things to which I can point. And I don't even have to point in order to use the word that if I'm overlooking uh, you know, a sight from my window and I say, that is fluffy as the cat passes by, right? It seems like that can't have its meaning even though I didn't point, right? And so the question is, well, what, what fixes the meaning of these expressions like this and that, which seem to have an endless potential to, to refer to pretty much anything I can point out? Uh, and how is it that we're so good at interpreting it, given that there's such an about, enormous amount of things it can amount it can, it can mean depending on on the situation in which it is uttered, uh, and sort of the common starting point for most people is to say, well, it's really about what the speaker had in mind, right? Is because I intended to talk about my cat as I was pointing at it that my utterance means that a cat is fluffy and then what you need to do as an interpreter is you need to figure out what I had in mind so you're kind of mind reading you're trying to recognize the intentions behind my utterance so that's that was a kind of a starting point and while that's kind of natural I have been arguing that kind of misses a whole range of mechanisms that are linguistic in nature and that we have to learn as speakers of a language uh, that, in fact, do this kind of meaning-fixing word for us and then kind of cut across uh, natural reasoning about speakers' intentions and, and one another's minds. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to try to summarize a little bit just to make sure that I'm on, on the right track. So if I uh, point at my phone and I say, give me that, and the sentence is context sensitive because it could mean different things in different places. One of the broader approaches or one of the more common approaches in the literature for how to make sense of something like that is to appeal to non-linguistic features of the exchange, like mind reading or the fact that I'm, I'm pointing. And your project is to try to make sense of these sorts of sentences with purely linguistic features. That's right. That's right. So the thought was that uh, the, the intention that I'm really doing the meaning fixing rule work, it's really the language that does it, the rules of language, by which it, I mean is that there's lots of conventionality that we rely on that are telling as to what the uh, 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 meaning of an utterance is. So in, in, in a particular case you're describing, 
I argue that pointing gestures are a part of language that vary from language to language in its form and meaning, and that we have to learn across speakers of a language uh, in order to interpret uh, the utterances. So in that case, even if I intended something different, if I'm pointing at my cat, what I have said would have been about my cat, not about this other thing. So I want to talk about my dog, but my cat is faster and just runs in front of it. And as I'm pointing, I say that it's fluffy. Well, that's a kind of an accident. I said something that I didn't intend. And it's because of these kinds of rules, like point rules governing pointing, uh, that that's what fixes the meaning of matters. That is so fascinating. And it's it's totally brilliant. And I know I sound like I, I, I'm being really glowing, but my first inclination would be, of course, pointing isn't part of language because language is something we do with our with our mouths and with sound, but then what's sign language? Sign language is just language with your hand. So essentially what you're saying is that all language includes uh, gestures uh, and some, I mean, it's, yeah. And it's more likely that, I mean, something very, com- I mean, pointing is probably something that might be common to all languages, but given the, giving the middle finger or something might be unique to certain cultures. That's right. But even pointing, I mean, there's obviously these iconic gestures, but then there's even with things like pointing, not all linguistic uh, uh, communities exploit the same types of gestures, not even pointings with your, so not everybody points with fingers. There's linguistic communities that use, say, for instance, slips or a particular type of uh, gaze or uh, uh, even within the communities that use finger pointing, not every uh, organization of a hand shape and fingers has the same meaning and interpretation. So even in English, we distinguish things like pointing with one finger versus pointing with an open hand. Right? So one thing might mean I'm talking about this particular thing as opposed to a, th- a thing that's an instantiation of a type. Um, and so there's a lot of work in, in linguistics pointing these things, but the sort of it hasn't been brought to bear on this debate about the meaning of demonstrative terms and what role intentions play in fixing them. And that's, I think, what was missing from this uh, 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 from this debate, recognizing the conventionality that this kind of wide variation across languages seems to be pointing to. Mm. It's funny that before we started talking, I said, well, I, I'd like to get to context at the end if we have a moment. But now it's... It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's to the end, yeah center in the conversation but so i know that we've we've stepped a bit away from fixing word tokens but i i mean i want to dwell on this for a moment longer the what you just discussed with the different gestures across languages is this one way in which your research has connected quite closely and importantly to the empirical literature Yes. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that was particularly important to this project of context is to do it just precisely recognizing the breadth of conventionality, both within the language and across languages, uh, that uh, uh, is very easy to, to miss or to uh, kind of uh, assimilate to this kind of natural extra linguistic cues that we just use to figure out what one another has in mind. 
Uh, so it might seem natural that, oh, what else would I be doing if I'm pointing at it and singling out the thing I'm pointing at? But it turns out it's actually quite subtle as to what the meaning of a pointing gesture is, depending on its form and depending on, on the particular language that I speak or a linguistic community that I belong to. Uh, and so that, I think, is precisely one place where this kind of cross-linguistic uh, empirical research is, is central. Um, mm -hmm. The data can often be misleading, but I love when, when philosophers appeal to data. I mean, some might think that philosophy all has to be totally abstract, but it can really strengthen an argument, and I'm sure it does in this case, to be able to point to different languages and how the the gestures are used, for instance. That's right. And, I, and the, the empirical research on this is very rich. And it's I think it's, uh, it's very important for philosophy to for philosophers to be aware of this and to, you know, appeal to it. in, in these debates, are, are there ways in which it helps uh, disprove or lower the credence in the alternatives? So the accounts that look for non linguistic features? to settle meaning? Um, well, I think the, the there are conceptual issues as to what makes something linguistic versus non-linguistic. So what was important, what was sort of the, the, the uh, reasoning behind my argument is that what makes it sort of, the, the question is whether something is a matter of general psychology and reasoning about one another's mental states or whether it's something that you have to learn specifically as a speaker of a language, that is whether it's underwritten by a convention. And what's meant by that is that, in principle, it could have been different. So, the, like, the easiest case to think about is just if you think about the uh, pairing of a, of a particular word form and its meaning, right? So, that the fact that, I, that the word cat denotes cats, right, uh, is sort of an arbitrary conventional fact of English. It could have been otherwise. We could have used a different word, say, dog, to refer to cats. We just don't do it that way. And so this kind of arbitrariness is a hallmark of conventionality, which tells you that you can't just by way of general logic of the situation that is given to you by like extra linguistic resources, figure out what the intended meaning is. You actually have to appeal to a pairing of a form and a meaning that you learn uh, uh, as a matter of a, of a convention. So that's really, it's it's more conventionality versus non-conventionality than this sort of kind of linguistic versus non-linguistic thing that is uh, at play here, and so I I, I think that to be a, a criterion by which uh, 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 one can judge uh, these types of cases. And then you also always want to kind of to make it concrete, right? You want to think about specific cases, right? So uh, the, the sort of a case I like to think about is this kind of cases of accidental meanings or non-intended meanings, which we think are telling. So, you know, I want to point at uh, Sue and I, you know that I, I, I really dislike her and I want to say she's uh, a jerk, right? Uh, and then uh, accidentally, right, I, maybe I have a muscle spasm or Sue moves and Mary just jumps in very quickly and I end up pointing at Mary as I'm uttering she's a jerk. It seems like in that case, even though I intended to speak about 
uh, Sue, even though you know that I intended to speak about Sue, I still kind of have to apologize and explain away this situation. And so the natural way to think about this is that I said something that I didn't intend to say. So this is a kind of a case where it seems like my intentions go you know, in a different direction from what actually is the meaning of my utterance. So I think those kinds of cases for me are telling that these sorts of overt cues, which I think are conventionalized, are really what is doing the meaning determining work. And because they're conventionalized, I think they're also linguistic in this relevant sense. Mm -hmm. No, that's another really compelling example. And I think the point, the first pointing example, pointing to my phone, is a case that I mean, it quite strongly demonstrates how a feature of language can fix meaning in a context that we don't have to appeal to mind reading or other non-linguistic features. But but before we get back to word tokening, I'm wondering whether there are any other striking examples other than, than pointing where we can fix meaning with a discourse, with appeal to a discourse convention rather than having to uh, talk about something non-linguistic. Um, so one type of a sort of one class of, of, uh, these types of rules that I, uh, draw on a lot uh, in this work are these, um, uh, rules by which discourses are structured that tell you how individual utterances are connected together. So here I'm drawing on work incoherence theory, which originated in, in AI research. Um, but the idea is, so let's give you a simple kind of a case, uh, just to have a sense of what types of things I'm talking about. So if I tell you, uh, uh, John took a train from Paris to Istanbul, he has family there. That's a perfectly natural thing to say. But if I tell you, John took a train from Paris to Istanbul, he likes spinach. That's suddenly very weird, right? So yes. it makes one thing a natural thing and the other kind of a weird, weird thing to say. Well, we normally interpret the discourse as organized a certain way. So we don't just randomly, you know, sequence sentences in no particular order. They're connected together by these inferential connections. In this case, it's an explanatory connection that tells you that's why he took the train from Paris to Istanbul, and that's why the first discourse makes sense. It's a natural explanation of the trip. Whereas in the other case, you're kind of wondering how does preference for spinach explain train trips? It's a weird way to to give an explanatory discourse. And so, so this has been well researched and 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 and, and studied, but. Um, what I was arguing uh, here again is that these are kind of linguistic conventions that um, play a role in meaning fixing. And one type of a striking example of this sort that is similar to the pointing case that I was describing earlier is if you think about um, certain kinds of relations that you would expect would be available, but you don't find them easily. So suppose I tell you uh, John shot Bill, he died. That's a natural way of describing a result of an event, right? Uh, but if I tell you now John shot Bill, he was dead. Uh, now suddenly it seems like you were shooting at a dead body, right? It's no longer natural to describe this as a result of the event of shooting. So what makes it so that in one case you can understand this as an event result discourse and the other case that's much harder? It seems like there's no other differences between these two other than the case that in one sort of a discourse, you have a stative description 
and in the other you have a mentive, so died versus was dead, right? Uh, but surely, you know, we know as a matter of common knowledge that, you know, sh- <laughs> shooting people tends to kill them, right? So if this was just generally interpreting what makes the most sense and what the speaker had in mind, there would be no obstacle of interpreting the previous courses the same. So it seems like there is really an extra bit of constraint that's coming from the language telling you, oh, in one case, you're describing what was happening while the the event was getting set up, whereas in the other case, you're describing what happened as an as a result of an event, and that seems again to be something that's encoded in the language itself rather than just conveyed by way of general general reasoning. Hmm. Uh, this this project is is so fascinating. And did you were you working on because I know you do philosophy of cognitive science as well? Did you? come across coherence theory in AI because of research in the philosophy of language or philosophy of cognitive science in AI? But it definitely came from from this kind of in, interdisciplinary nature of, of my upbringing, if I can put it that way. So uh, just by way, so I studied at Rutgers, which this is very interdisciplinary place. I had a very, I was exposed to a very wide range of perspectives and had a very uh, a portion of a very wide range of influences and mentors uh, and uh, definitely through the the, the cognitive science uh, center and the training within the cognitive science center this is something that kind of shaped my my perspective and um, in particular uh, um, this part of a project that I was describing that grew out of a collaboration with uh, both Ernie, who we had on the on the show, and Matthew Stone, who is in computer science at Rutgers, who uh, very much was doing this type of research, uh, and uh, uh, was definitely an influence. Very cool. I, I I love to hear that because one thing that I I keep saying on the podcast is that I think the the best philosophers are the philosophers that are that have their their waist deep or knee deep in other fields and it sounds like you're one of them and you're happily uh, supporting my contention but getting getting back to uh, just words i think that it would be very helpful uh, to go through this slowly and to first look at i i know you you, you briefly mentioned some of the alternatives to your original plus transfer account. But before we get to that account, how might speaker intentions fit into solving this problem of word tokening? What is the motivation for the view? And then why does it fail? Um, so the the, the 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 route of speaker intentions is very natural here. This was the sort of a view that was defended by David Kaplan most prominently. Uh, and the thought was, well, surely which word I utter, it ultimately has to do to some extent with what I intended to utter, right? Uh, and a natural way to think about it is that intentions are uh, either at least necessary, maybe even sufficient for word tokening, right? Uh, so it is because I intended to token the word bank, meaning financial institution rather than the word bank, meaning river bank, that my utterance of bank 
is the utterance of one word, not the other, right? Uh, uh, and surely it's like what I had in mind that matters, right? Uh, and now, of course, there's problems with that. The initial problem is that just that oftentimes what you produce can uh, uh, in various ways deviate from the standard. So if I intend to utter bang, but I go on and utter banana, have I token the word bang? And most people have what wanted to kind of resist it and no, no, um, uh, uh, there are some constraints on what you can, on how you can produce the words and that's where tolerance comes in. So the, I would say the most widespread way of thinking about it is that some combination of intentions constrained by the standards of tolerance is what uh, plays the role in determining uh, uh, token word identity. Um, but I think sort of both sides of this are wrong. So it's the intentions are neither necessary nor sufficient for tokening a word. You can quite well token words that were unintended, but also the, the standards of tolerance are are not relevant for determining what I actually tokened, even though they might be useful guides, even though the resemblance to a standard of pronunciation or spelling may be a useful guide for you as an interpreter to tell what I was trying to do, right? So again, just to, to summarize, maybe. So one may, way of motivating the account naturally is that even though, I mean, you have a slight accent, so maybe your pronunciation is ever so slightly different from the canonical pronunciation, or or maybe a child might uh, misspell on, on a spelling test. I, I deposit money at the bank and they spell it with a C because of their intentions were that's how the interpreter knows what word they're tokening. That's right. So, so uh, the thought is you can you, the, the the standard answer to this is that what you intended is ultimately what determines what you tokened, and then uh, uh, the thought is well, that's not sufficient, right? Uh, because you can misspell and mispronounce, so you have to constrain it in some way. So the reason why. Uh, when I say, but so they would say that when I say banana, that cannot be a token of the word cat because it doesn't resemble sufficiently the the uh, uh, standards of of, uh, of the linguistic community within which it's produced. Right? It's not sufficiently similar to the canonical spelling of bank or a pronunciation of bank. If I say banana, right? Um, so that's a kind of a standard way of approaching this. Uh, and then what I have been arguing is that neither intentions nor tolerance either are necessary or jointly sufficient for uh, word identity. So you can token words that are non-intended and uh, you can also mispronounce them as badly as you like and still be tokening them. Uh, the standards of tolerance are not not playing the role in determining the meaning, uh, in determining the identity of the of the token. Are there key ways, though, in which the a potential program for determining specific standards of tolerance um, fails that you can point to? It, right. So, so I mean, this is of course things are not random. There's a reason why typically when I when I utter banana, I'm tokening banana and not cat. Uh, so the reason why intentionalism, why why I think intentions are neither necessary nor sufficient, is that um, uh, you can 
you can sort of accidentally token a non-intended word. Uh, so to see this is it, it's easy to think about the semantic exchange error. So those are the kinds of slips of tongue, right? Where you intend to say one thing, but accidentally say another. Um, so uh, the way, uh, the, the kind of standard examples of this is I want to say, uh, I, I'm going to grab my tennis racket, but it, I accidentally I say, I'm going to grab my tennis bat. And so the thought there is that my intended word was racket, and that activated a certain item within my mental lexicon, but that also co-activates semantically connected uh, terms, so semantically connected items, and oftentimes one of those can beat up, beat out the intended target and be selected accidentally, as it were. So that was a non-intended item that just won out in this kind of stochastic process, so that that's now the one that's being selected and sent down for further production. So that will be a case where I selected an unintended word and then produced that, right? Um, so that tells you that, you know, clearly intending to token a word is not uh, as sufficient. And insofar as you agree with me that this is a case in which I actually token the word racket, right? It's not necessary to intend to token it in order to token it. So that's by way of the failure of intention part. But now if, if we think about the, the tolerance part, so how badly can I mispronounce the word, where there the thought is, if I selected a word and then I send it down for further processing, it's going to go through several stages of, of production. So it's going to go through syntactic encoding, right, setting up the number and so forth, the syntactic features of the, of the expression, then further down to... Um, Morphological, uh, phonological, phonetic encoding, and finally articulation. Right, so there are several processes, each of which builds in separate uh, uh, layer of representation, resulting in my articulation of the word. And there can be mistakes at any given point. But the thought was, insofar as you selected a particular item and then send it further down for production. If things get scrambled in one of these other stages, that's still scrambling of the item you selected, right? And so, for instance, you can get these kind of phonetic exchangers well, where uh, you can get things like, I intend to say uh, a big feet, but accidentally I say feet beat, right? Uh, so that's a case where I selected the right word, but I organized my phonemes in the wrong way. So I got to something scrambled, right? Uh, and so in principle, so conceptually speaking, you could have a, a selection of the word bag that comes out as banana because something really weird happened in my brain during the process of production. But typically we don't see that. And the reason why we don't see that is that, at, that very specific types of errors occur at very specific points in production. And they're telling us to what sorts of an error it is, can tell you whether it's a scrambling of a particular word that I selected or whether it's an accidental selection or a word that I didn't intend, right? So it actually helps you as a guide to what I actually tokened uh, and uh, the errors we get are not random. So while it is true that my mule leaves it open that you can pronounce cat as banana, uh, conceptually speaking, there's nothing that can in principle prevent this kind of a situation. It's not just a mere accident that these kind of standards of tolerance are a good guide as to what actually happened. They're a good guide because typically uh, the errors that occur in the uh, phonological and phonetic encoding process are not so 
dramatic so that you get two bananas starting with a cat, right? Uh, that's the that's the thought. Hmm. And everything I'm hearing sounds again like this is another place where your work was seriously informed by the cognitive science literature or or, or other empirical literature. That's right. So I, I think I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So what sorts of uh, studies or experiments were you citing for this paper or well, this book project? No, this is yeah, a paper, so sorry. This is a paper, yeah. So in this particular paper, I was looking at, at literature on speech production. Uh, and this is, again, a, a wide area of research. And uh, really what I was looking for is, so this kind of appeal to intentions, I mean, it's a very natural starting point, but it's also one that kind of abstracts away from what goes on in the mind as you kind of go to talk in a particular way. So of course, at a very high level of, of description, uh, what you intend matters for what you're going to say. And typically, if things go right, right, your intended message is going to find its intended expression, which is going to be organized in the intended way and result in the articulation you would expect, right? So normally, things are in sync. Um, but uh, drawing on this literature on on, on uh, on uh, um, on speech production, right? Uh, uh, I think we can kind of see that there's more complexity to that kind of a process than just like, okay, I intend to produce a word that outcomes an expression. There's several layers of these uh, types of representations that you have to go through. Uh, and, uh, and that was something that uh, I think was crucial uh, uh, for, that is, that is crucial for getting the story exactly right. Um. And then one last thing that I, I wanted to ask about this is whether you see your account as uh, pointing the way to a plausible mechanism by which words are, are born and individuated. Ah, right. So this is now the question of like, what, what, so I told you a story about what happened in the individual speaker's, uh, you know, mind. Uh, but of course, that's just my mind. What makes it so that what happens in my mind is a opening out the same expression as what is the one in your your mind. So I say which word I token that is depends on which word was selected from my mental lexicon. Uh, but of course, what when is that the case that both your your utterance and mine are of the same word? Well, then depends on what each of us well, the item we each of us selected from our mental lexicons and what makes those uh, uh, the same. Uh, well, there I'd say was well, a kind of a causal story that connects the uh, item from each individual speaker's mental lexicon to the original event of uh, word coining, right? So the thought is just this kind of originalized sort of picture that um, is in certain sense akin to uh, the originalism that you see in David Kaplan, but uh, where we have to think about the originating event in a slightly different way. But the basic story is just this. At some point, somebody introduces an expression into a language that's a coining event, and then that expression gets transferred through linguistic community, through causal and uh, uh, historical social connections, right, by being used within the linguistic community. Uh, and... Uh, uh, when I'm exposed to a word, say for the first time when I learned an expression, 
uh, that expression is then represented within my mental lexicon and I can then draw on that in my speech production. And if, when we both learn a word, if we learned it, if our items in our mental lexicons that we stored as we learned this can be traced down to the same coining event, that makes it so that it's the same expression. So that's a sort of a, a basic story, but now the question then becomes well, what is it what makes it so that a particular word is coined and what happens when you have these kind of weird changes uh, uh, through history there, what I argue is that once you have a change in the meaning, you have a new coining of an expression. So coining can happen tacitly without anybody intending to introduce a new word. It can be introduced on the fly through, you know, a casual conversation. Maybe even the speaker might not understand that they're actually introducing a new expression. So this is a, a lot more flexible than some kind of like kind of baptism procedure where uh, a word is officially introduced into a language. Mm. The the word baptism signals uh, Kripke's influence in all of this. So it's a, a bit of a, a, a it's a twist or a development of, of on Kripke and, and Kaplan. That's that's right. I, I so so the so Kaplan's originalism dances very well with kind of Kripkean or uh, sort of originalism. What Kripke was mostly concerned with was kind of meaning uh, determination. So like a meaning gets established by an event of baptism and then gets transferred to a linguistic community, and then the question repeats itself at the level of expressions themselves. So. When you introduce an expression, now what makes it so that that expression continues its life uh, through, you know, time and space? Well, it's again this kind of causal historical picture that uh, uh, Kaplan is offering, and they these two go very naturally hand in hand together. Hmm. Well, this is going to this talk of expressions is going to be my not so smooth uh, segue into another into another topic. And as I, I mentioned before we spoke, Ernie Lepore and I already talked a bit about your joint work on a certain sort of expressions, so slurs and, and pejoratives. But since it's been about 100 episodes now, I'd like to dig into it again a little bit with, with fresh eyes and ears. And first off, how do slurs relate to pejoratives more generally? And then what is the the puzzle or problem that philosophers have been dealing with regarding them? Mm. Uh, right. So this is a, actually a really complex question on what makes something a slur. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, there's different ways people are trying to approach this in the literature, coming up with different criteria on what something has to, what an expression has to satisfy in order to be a slur. Uh, our own perspective on this is that this is really not so much a linguistic issue as it's more a kind of a, a social or cultural issue, what makes something a slur. Uh, and in fact, we ultimately don't think that the slurring status of a term is really something about the term itself to begin with. It's something about the articulation of a term. So that's a kind of a, an unexpected position in which we end up. Sure, sure. I just meant I just meant more conventionally what what slur like how people just in general think of slurs and pejoratives in their relationship. Right. So the most in, intuitive starting point is people will say things like, okay, so a slurring expression is one that 
uh, 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 offends or denigrates a target group based on group membership alone. Uh, so the classic examples, if, if you think about um, uh, 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 expressions that denigrate on the basis of either race or uh, sexual orientation or um, maybe a, a religious identity and so forth, various types of identities, right? Uh, and so that would be a starting point. What makes it so that these expressions are so explosive and offensive and which aspect of their uh, uh, behavior is responsive for this kind of inflammatory uh, uh, nature that they have, uh, but that they offend on the basis of these kind of identity um, uh, uh, descriptors, right? As opposed to more general pejoratives, which are supposed to be just singling out negative traits. So like if you call somebody a jury, right, you're not uh, offending an entire group on the basis of their identity, right? You're just singling out a negative property in a particular individual. Now, what a lot of people have recognized along the way is that the dividing line between these is not exactly as sharp as one might uh, initially expect, like would make something, uh, 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 you know, an immutable characteristics of an identity, as a lot of people also think that slurs have to have neutral counterparts, right? So that you can describe exactly the same group in non uh, 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 in a non-offensive ways. So that would be a neutral descriptor. Uh, but again, for a lot of expressions, it seems like that's, that criterion is not satisfied either, right? And the dividing line there doesn't seem to be uh, quite so sharp. So what we end up thinking is that really what divides this is not so much uh, the uh, 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 linguistic property of an expression qua class, but rather something about the social uh, behavior of an expression and and uh, 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 sociolinguistic and cultural context. Mm -hmm. it, because the art articulation is in itself uh, offensive, and we'll we'll get to that uh, later. You two in your book. You don't actually articulate by writing, of course, any of these uh, slurs, but instead you use the term you use the term mudblood. And I'm wondering if that was your it was that your inclusion. <laughs> yeah. So, so sort of what I realized is that our theory uh, kind of uh, has this implication that it is so. I'll think what we argue just this, so that this is clear. What we argue is that it's really the articulation or certain of the canonical articulations of an expression that trigger certain negative associations, right? Uh, that in, in term are responsive for this, what we call the offensive potential of a slur term. So that doesn't mean that every time you have an articulation, you're offending somebody, but it means that you can trigger certain kinds of associations that can be exploited for a particular effect, right? Which the negative, which the neutral articulation wouldn't have, right? And so that is why uh, uh, we uh, decided not to adjudicate our. So that doesn't mean that every time you print a slur term, you're automatically doing something objectionable. These questions about whether something is objectionable or not are kind of downstream from the fact that you trigger a particular effect. And so what we realized is that by printing these expressions by our very own uh, theory, we would be unleashing these associations, right? And so put, having to judge ourselves whether the effect in this case, triggering the effect in this case is warranted or not. So we decided not to do that. Uh, and that's why we appeal to these kinds of uh, uh, fictional counterparts 
uh, that then we, we invite our readership to uh, test their intuitions against the actual case, the real life cases that they are all very familiar with. And if you think about it, of course, everybody who has ever heard a slur in their life or, or not a slur in their life, they, they know what these associations are. So you, you don't have to actually print it out for people to appreciate the, the judgments for themselves. Mm-hmm. So are you a, a Harry Potter fan then? Is that how, how Mudblood came about? Because I, I doubt that Ernie chose it. <laughs> Well, that sort of came naturally as an easy uh, off-the-shelf example. Uh, I think uh, uh, there's, I mean, I've done a, a quite a bit of it. There's quite a lot of, actually, once you start looking into this fictional slurs. Uh, uh, and then just the question is, what would have been the one that's most widely uh, uh, recognizable and easily easily caught on? So this is the one we, we started with. But we could have equally well gone with any one of the number of fictional uh, slurgers and, you know, we, I, I, I now have a whole little collection of these. So if you have more, send them my way. I, 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 I love now exploring this fictional, <laughs> the fictional slurgers. Yeah, well, m- maybe because I like Harry Potter a lot. Uh, mudblood is a powerful word for me. <laughs> I, and it might be powerful for other people, right? I I know that the <laughs> account, thing, yeah, yeah, the, that, that the, is another thing. We're worried about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Your account is an articulation account, but uh, there is a lot of pejorative content still in in mudblood contained in the in those words uh, that that's hard to avoid. But I'm curious before we move on, what are some of the other uh, fictional slurs that you've picked up? Um. And so, uh, I, I mean, uh, there's uh, the uh, uh, the one that is similarly evocative as Madlad is Spoonhead. Uh, this is uh, 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 Star Trek lore. Uh, but there really is a, a whole bunch of these types of expressions. We just went for this one because it was just the most, like, it, it seems like widely, widely accessible to people. So just like we, we did with um, with the word tokening and fixing meaning, I'd like to talk about some of the accounts that don't work for slurs. So to that purpose, I mean, what, what are the pejorative content accounts of slurs and, and why do you think that these fail? Um, well, so it's a very natural starting point to think that this got to happen have something to do with the meaning of an expression. So what is it that makes it so that the slur is offensive? It's got to be about what it means, right? Uh, what it either semantically encodes or pragmatically conveys. And if you look at the literature, you really can teach an entire semantics slash pragmatics course just on the basis of various accounts of slur terms. For, because like if you think about any, any, any familiar way of encoding meaning that people have thought of, Somebody has argued that that's the way in which slurs encode some kind of pejorative or offensive content. So you have, you know, the truth conditional accounts that tell they just predicate something offensive. Then you have presuppositional accounts that say they presuppose something offensive or pejorative, right? Or then you have uh, conventional implicature accounts that say they implicate something offensive, just as, you know, and then Bach might have 
the same truth conditional meaning, but maybe they differ in, in their implicated meaning. Uh, then there's people who think it's a conversational implicature, it's a pragmatic inference that uh, 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 there is something offensive in using a term, maybe you're, you're implicating that you're agreeing with uh, the, the uh, particular type of bigoted worldview, right? And that's what's offensive. Uh, so really, by way of any other familiar ways of conveying content, somebody has argued that that's how slurs operate. And I think that's a very natural starting point, and especially if you're starting from the perspective of philosophy of language and linguistics, that's where you would start. It's kind of your uh, your wheelhouse. But what we argue is that, that sort of starting assumption that that that's where we're going to find the explanation, that's what kind of took uh, things the wrong way. And uh, if you look carefully at the behavior of these expressions, really none of these ways of encoding meaning can explain the full range of behavior of these terms, the full range of data that we see. Hmm. Well, I can confirm what you said about a pragmatics and semantics course, because I spoke to the the chair of the linguistics department here at Stanford, uh, Chris Potts, and yeah, and I looked at his semantics and pragmatics course, and he teaches a lot about slurs. He uses those uh, as a major example. But so one other class of accounts that I don't think you just mentioned include prohibitionism and pejorative tone. And why do the what are those accounts? Why do they not fit the bill? Right. So. I wouldn't classify those accounts as meaning accounts because they explicitly argue it's not about the meaning of an expression. And they do so in different ways, right? So the the prohibitionist account tells you there isn't really anything special about uh, uh, the meaning of these terms or their pragmatic behavior. Uh, it's rather that they're simply taboo, right? So they're prohibited words. That's why it's called prohibitionism. Uh, and that can be prohibited for any number of reasons. Uh, most notably, you know, a group can kind of disallow the term or reject it as a term of self-designation, and that establishes it as a kind of a taboo expression, right? Uh, and then the thought is that what makes it offensive is that it's a violation of this prohibition, right? So you're violating a taboo, and that what creates an effect, right? So there, the thought is it's not a meaning account because it doesn't it doesn't posit any kind of negative meaning to a term insofar as the meaning goes, the, the slur term can be completely synonymous with a neutral term. It's just that one is taboo, the other isn't. So, and what we think goes wrong with that type of a view is that that just doesn't really, so there's several things that I think are problematic there. Um, but to first approximation, it seems like something's missing. Uh, the, one type of a criticism that's often raised is that uh, the account doesn't explain why uh, that there's something wrong with slur terms, which is why they become taboo. They rather say there are slurs because they are taboo. Uh, and that seems to get things somehow backwards. Uh, and to see this, you can see there's lots of things that are taboo, but that aren't slurs. Uh, uh, you know, there's uh, prohibitions against uh, uh uh, you know, tokening of the name of the devil uh, might inspire fear, but not offense, right? So, like, 
bad luck, you should not do it. It's, or prohibitions against tokening the name of God, so that's blasphemy, right? But it's not like the expression is a slur term, it's a taboo term, but it has a, it, the violation has a very different effect. So it cannot just be that you're violating a prohibition that explains why the offense arise, why there is this kind of offensive effect, right? Uh, rather something else must be going on. So this is something that the pejorative tone, the other account you mentioned, tries to take uh, uh, into, into account and tries to explain by saying, well, the reason why these expressions become prohibited is because they have this kind of negative tone. So what's tone? Well, here the thought kind of goes back to this observation, this Phrygian observation that certain terms can be synonymous, but they can kind of bring out different types of associations. So Frigga talks about the distinction right. between describing something as a dog versus a cur or as a horse versus a, a stallion versus a nag, right? So it all describes a horse, right? But one describes it in a positive light, the other in a very negative light, right? So the idea is that different exp- and so the similar things you see within the range of like a sociolinguistic registers so describing somebody as a mother versus a mummy, right? Might give you very different effects, right? And so then the thought was that maybe slur terms encode this kind of signal, this difference in tone that a neutral expression and the one that's not a slur has difference in not meaning but tone. And the reason why tone is not meaning-like is because it's kind of open-ended, it's variable across speakers, and it's not something that's kind of either linguistically encoded by way of, of convention, it's more automatically and causally triggered, right? Uh, and uh, uh, no particular association need arise in any given case, uh, but there is a kind of open-ended range of associations that puts uh, uh, that makes you think of of the target in a particular way. Hmm. I wanted to add, as as you were talking, that uh, Lord Voldemort is another name that uh, must not be uh, tokened. Yeah, that must not uh, be tokened. Good, good. <laughs> um, but that's a voice, not a slur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so this leads, though, to your articulation account with Ernie and what. Does it solve that the other two classes of accounts we just discussed don't? So the type of data that we were particularly impressed with and that we thought none of the meaning accounts capture is that there is this kind of hyper, what we call hyper-projectivity of this offensive potential, this effect that... Uh, slurs have that neutral terms don't have, which makes them suitable to be either weaponized to offend or maybe to be exploited for artistic or pedagogical purposes or just kind of create this kind of effect in the audience that a neutral term would not would not uh, 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 create. And this is hyper-projective in a sense that it escapes various types of embeddings, including quotation, right? So normally when you quote an expression, you're not expressing its meaning, you're referring to the expression as such, right? Uh, so if I say, um, quote-unquote, the snow is white, means the snow is white, I've not predicated anything of, of the snow, right? I've just stated the meaning of the term, right? Uh, or if I say, uh, uh, quote-unquote, who dies 
Serbian means the nice Serbian. I have not predicated anything of, of myself. Again, I have just quoted this expression. But this is not how slur terms behave. They still have this kind of inflammatory potential, even within quotes, which we see documented all over the, the place and with real life uh, uh, incidents of tokening slur terms. Also, we see this in editorial practices, which tell that we should not spell out slur terms, we should describe them. Uh, so the various kinds of censoring practices, right, within the media and public platforms, uh, and just by way of general linguistic condition and including psycholinguistic studies on this. So even just like bare exposures to slurs in uh, isolate, uh, isolated exposures to slurs for a very short amount of time give rise to kind of negative associations and subjects. So like, we have good reasons to think that whatever this effect is, it persists even when the expressions are merely quoted. And now that's very surprising if you're a meaning theorist. That's not so surprising if you are uh, a non one of these non-meaning theorists, but we think there's something that they can't explain either, which is that uh, these can, that kind of effect seems to be not only hyper-projective in the way that I just described, but also it's kind of sort of infectious. It tends to infect even terms that just sound similarly to slur terms, but are completely unrelated. Uh, so we talk of various uh, different incidents of this sort. Um, uh, one recent one involved this tokening of a Mandarin demonstrative term in the context of a uh, of a class uh, on uh, communication, I think, at USC, uh, where if you look at it, this is not how you mention confusion, nor is anybody confused what term has been tokened. The guy, before he tokened the expression, says, teeth describing filler words, and he says, well, in English we have, um, right, uh, in Mandarin you would use a demonstrative expression, that, and then he goes on to pronounce, which sounds like this, and then he goes on to pronounce it. Uh, uh, several times in a row, and it just happens to uh, phonetically uh, uh, resemble the N-word, right? Uh, and now this, this creates an uh, uh, uproar that was sufficient for there to be a, like a media coverage and various op-ed pieces as to what happened and whether the reactions were justified and so on. Now, the first thing to note is that it would be very strange to write op-ed pieces. It was just obvious there was no effect here and that everybody was just massively confused, right? Um, but the second thing to note is that nobody was really confused as to what was happening, right? So it's clear that it was just this very shape that gave rise to a certain kind of an association that was sufficient to trigger this kind of an effect, right? So that is difficult. To, and we see this is not an isolated example. Uh, people have discussed this uh, with a wide range of other examples. Uh, and in most of this, so there's this example of an adverb that sounds very similar also to the uh, 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 phonetic realization of the N-word, and now everybody knows about this, but still this, there's the kind of this permanent taint attached to the, to the expression so that now it's going to become permanently tainted and you wouldn't really token it either. And again, it's not a use mentioned confusion because everybody understands what exactly the word is that they're etymologically and semantically unrelated, but nevertheless, 
uh, 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 there is this kind of inheritance of the effect. Now, again, we're not interested in the normative questions of whether, you know, tokens of these expressions are blameworthy or there's anything wrong with them or how we should be thinking about what the speaker is doing and so forth. So none of that is, here's again, uh, none of that is is the, uh, all of it is kind of downstream from the fact that the effect inspires. We're just interested in what makes it so that the effect uh, 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 transpires in the first place that we can ask all these downstream questions about it. Uh, and with the, And finally, we also see that there's variation in the uh, potential uh, in presence and severity of the offensive uh, effect, uh, even in various articulations of a single expression. Um, so we talk about various instances of this. Um, for instance, if you think about the use of a censoring asterisk, it's supposed to soften the blow of an expression, right? Makes it less offensive. But of course, it's the same expression. It means exactly the same. So uh, putting an asterisk there to censor it doesn't really change the identity of an expression, but it's supposed to make it uh, uh, a less or minstos. So it uses of things like friggin, right, or shoot, right. Uh, so those are again meant to be variations of spelling and pronunciation, which create a change in the effect, but not a change in either meaning or word identity. And I think the most sort of striking example of this is the uh, phenomenon of graphic pejoratives in logographic languages like Mandarin. So there you can have a single expression that's offensive, that can be written two different ways with two different combinations of phonosemantic characters, right? Compounds uh, that are pronounced exactly the same way and that are offensive only when written and only when written of one of the two ways, right? So a lot of exonyms are aware of this sort and there was this kind of expunging of the offensive spelling that uh, 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 and replacing it with the non-offensive one uh, that uh, was supposed to uh, 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 remove the remove the effect. Again, that's very surprising because the word is presumably whichever what means whatever it means regardless of how it's pronounced or spelled. It is the word it is regarding regardless of how it is pronounced or spelled, but nevertheless it varies in its effect depending on how it's uh, how it's rendered, and we think that's very telling as to the source of these kind of offensive associations that uh, we think are responsible for the effect of stories. Hmm. I I think the hyper projectivity is an amazing sort of property to have discovered uh, because it it explains something very puzzling. I mean, why words? Why these words can't just be scare quoted or quoted at all uh, but something that I, I am wondering and the heart the articulation account explains the hyperprojectivity but something that I'm wondering and I'm not sure if I can uh, phrase the question the way I would like to but it's do you have any idea why just why it is that slurs of all words have this sort of articulation component where whereby for instance hyperprojectivity applies to them and not other words mm -hmm. so this you kind know, of i think at this point it's important to kind of go back to this idea of what exactly are slurs and i think it's this kind of dividing line is not so sharp i think this phenomenon of association is 
pretty widespread in principle anywhere can have associations, right? Uh, uh, or more specifically, any articulation, any shape or sound or gesture can have these types of associations. But not all associations are the same. Some are more explosive and inflammatory and uh, uh, negative and uh, uh, maybe uh, even violent and others, right? And so the more uh, sort of uh, pernicious the, uh, the, uh, the associations that are triggered are, the more uh, of this type of effect we might expect to get, right? Uh, and no, that, uh, That's totally compelling because, I mean, somebody with a terrible phobia of cats, for instance, the word cat might be hyper-projective for them, but not for me because they have terrible associations with cats. And it just happens to be a feature of slurs that because they're so charged, the majority of people have associations to them. And that's why as a class, they're hyper-projective. That, that's right. And also the case of cat, even if you have a phobia of cats, the type of associations that would arise would not necessarily be ones that would cause offense, but more maybe fear or uh, these other kinds of effects that you might get. So I think it's the nature of the associations that explains why we get the, the behavior that we do. Okay. Well, I mean, hyperprojectivity is such a compelling idea. The puzzle of Word individuation is another. I'm still wrapping my mind around the contention that English isn't just a written and spoken language, but there are all sorts of other dimensions to it, like gestural conventions. So your work is so fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and share it. No, thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.